As Dave said, I'm Ryan, I'm part of the leadership team. It's, uh, it's nice to be back up here. I haven't been up in, I don't know, a couple of months anyway. So feeling a wee bit, wee bit preach rusty maybe today, but it's all good. So we'll get into it this morning. Um, we've just finished our series in Ruth, as you know, uh, a six-week series. And uh, this is a little bridging uh, preach this morning. It's going to take us uh, from the Advent season into our carol service next week. Um, so we're going to try to bring a couple of the threads through from the Ruth series um, into today and then onward into our carol service next week. So looking forward to try to do that this morning. Uh, so let's get going. Um, I want to start this morning just by talking a little bit about, you know, this, that TV show, uh, Who Do You Think You Are? I'm sure most of you know it was on Friday night, Kate Winslet was on, on Friday night. It's, you know, they take a well-known personality or celebrity and they take them through their family tree where they kind of uncover all the stories and the people and the relationships and the tragedies and the joys that kind of make that person who they were, the story of their lives, in a sense, over the, over the years. A few, a few highlights of the show over the years have been this. There's been many really strange things that have been uncovered. Um, I don't know if you remember the TV chef, Ainsley Harriet. He was overcome with emotion when he found out that his great-great-grandmother had been a slave and was bought when she was just two years old. And even more scandalous, when he travelled to Barbados to find out about his, fa- his family beyond that, he found that his great-great-great grandfather actually came from a long line of white slaveholders, completely scandalous in Ainsley Harriet's um, family line. Then there was Danny Dyer, you know, from EastEnders. Who could forget Danny? Danny got the shock of his life when he found out that he had royal blood running through his veins. He was a direct descendant of two kings, William the Conqueror and Edward III. Who would have thought it? Diamond Geezer, Danny Dyer with royal blood in his veins. And then there was the Olympic uh, gold medalist roar. Sir Matthew Pinsent, I don't know if you remember him, he traced his relatives right back through Catherine Howard, who was one of Henry V's wives. Then he also had Edward I and William the Conqueror in his line. That's pretty impressive on its own, but the team uncovered an even more incredible fact about Matthew's family line. They uncovered this ancient scroll, which traced this Norman king, William the Conqueror, right back to Adam and Eve. So ultimately, allegedly, Sir Matthew Pinsent is related to God. So who knew? <laughs> who knew? There probably was a few par games going on somewhere in the past there, I think. I think if we're, we're all honest, we are all fascinated by our family history. If we get an opportunity to take a wee look, I've got this uncle on my dad's side, my uncle Derek, and uh, he's fascinated by this, and he's put together the Hawthorne family tree. Um, he's traced it all the way back to 1790. And can you guess where? Island McGee. <laughs> all the way back to that little peninsula in the East Antrim, Island McGee, all the way back then. My dad, he's a fan of local history as well. And um, he has these old ordnance survey memoirs from 1840, apparently the did this big survey of Ireland, and uh, this is what it says about the people of Island McGee in 1840, who would have been my uh, relatives, my ancestors. 
It says regarding their physical features, in stature, the Isle of McGee men rather exceed those of neighboring districts. They are coarsely and strongly made and are robust and vigorous in their figures. <laughs> the females may be easily distinguished from the neighboring farms by their ruddy and very comely complexions and faces. They are the most generally good-looking race in the whole of County Antrim, though at the same time, an instance of beauty is very unusual. <laughs> Regarding drinking and morality, this is a good one. The inhabitants of all sexes and classes are perhaps a more immoral race than is to be found in any rural district in Antrim. What makes their immorality all the more distinguishing is the openness and want of shame with which it is exhibited. <laughs> The women, whenever from home, or indeed whenever they can procure the means, drink raw spirits in such quantities as would astonish any but a native. Whiskey is an indispensable and never-failing accompaniment to all their recreations, and in fact, with all sexes and classes, constitutes the chief attraction and enjoyment. There is much sensuality, not only in their amusements, but in the manner of enjoying themselves. And almost all of their enjoyments terminate in drunkenness and debauchery. So there you go. Another remarkable trait amongst them, and one very unusual amongst the Presbyterians, of which I was one, uh, is their disregard for the admonitions of their ministers and the little respect they pay either to his person or to his counsels. They care not to be seen while intoxicated by him, and even on Sundays they will, while in a state of inebriety, address him on the road. <laughs> that was brilliant. And then regarding superstitions, a lot, a lot makes sense to me about my own life when I read this, strangely enough. Regarding superstitions, in no part of Ireland are the people more generally and inveterately superstitious than here. Most of the better educated class implicitly believe in witchcraft, fairies, brownies, and enchantments, and there are a few who are not perfectly convinced of the guilt of the unfortunate individual, individuals convicted of witchcraft, alleged to have been committed here in 1711. The utmost attention is given to dreams and omens. Many have seen the devil in the shape of a pig or a black dog. There you go. My, my relatives, amazing stuff. Jude's married into really good stock, hasn't she, as you can kind of guess, you know. This is kind of remarkable social history, you know, on the, the state of the conditions that existed for my forebears, my family line. Amazing to think these were the social conditions that preceded, just by 10 years, the Irish potato famine, which struck only 10 years later. And I think it wiped out maybe 15 to 20% of the people in County Antrim. And then 10 years after that, the great 1859 revival swept through the north of Ireland, of which like 100,000 people allegedly came to Jesus. So into those dark days, the Spirit of God was at work and great good come from it. Um, I even bought my dad one of those wee DNA test things, you know, and uh, no surprises. Ulster Scots Heritage with a little sprinkling of Northern European in there. But all of this just to say, generally, that if we've got the chance to, we're intrigued about where we come from, aren't we? About our story of origins. We become fascinated by the stories and the people in our family lines, and that makes us, in some respect, who, who we are today. Just who do we think we are, as the TV program asks. And um, you may ask, what has this got to do with Advent? Well, we're going to come to our text here this morning, and that's uh, Matthew 1. So if you wouldn't mind turning to Matthew 1, or it'll be on the screen. 
as well. And we're going to read the genealogy of Jesus together. It's Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab and Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the, is that my watch? That's somebody else's. Uh, sorry. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, the 14, our 14 generations. So obviously we're reading the genealogy of Jesus because it's a season of Advent. Every year we kind of come to this season and we cross this imaginary boundary into feeling Christmassy, don't we? And that's what Advent's all about, isn't it? We get the decorations out, we sing some carols together, we give some gifts, and oh yeah, baby Jesus is in there too. Can't forget baby Jesus. Jesus is the reason for the season. We like to remind each other cheesily. The word Advent itself is derived from this Latin word, Adventus, which means arrival or coming. We often say that Advent is this season of waiting, that liturgy we just read together, that beautiful liturgy was all about waiting and come Lord Jesus. But what are, we, what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for baby Jesus? The, the traditional church calendar, this season of Advent wasn't just about remembering the story of Jesus' birth. It was a season of preparation and participation, of renewing faith in an obedience to Jesus. It was also a season of anticipation that looked toward the second advent of Jesus' return, the consummation of this present age and the ushering in of Christ's renewal of all things. So the first advent of Jesus, we think about his coming and his incarnation, and that inaugurates this renewal that we're caught up in. It kicked the whole thing off. It's a process of renewal in which we participate at the people of God. We're going to be talking about Advent as participation this morning and as anticipation. The second Advent of Jesus is about the consummation of God's plan of renewal. Jesus 
bodily return when he will make all things new. This is something that we as a people anticipate. So I want to talk about this idea of anticipation a wee bit first of all. There's a sense that uh, during the Advent season we relive the anticipation of the ancient people of God um, in this season as we do that. We, kinda, we would do well to remember that at the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, there was 400 years of silence before the coming of Christ. 400 years where God did not speak, where there was silence on God's behalf. He did not speak to his people. I think that's a really important lesson for us because sometimes there are just no easy answers for us when God makes us wait for something, when we feel like he is silent. The waiting we experience as the people of God can sometimes be difficult as we long for God to come and bring change for something in our own circumstances to shift. We long maybe for breakthrough in our personal lives. We long for our health to shift, for our finances to improve, for our relationships to be healed or something else. We may also long for, for God to bring change to our corporate life together as the community of God, the church. We long maybe for the Holy Spirit to, to breathe afresh on us collectively as the people of God to bring renewal to us as a community. We might also long for God to act and bring larger change to the world around us as he's done in the ages past when the church has been breathed upon by the Spirit of God, the Spirit has been poured out in power and what we call revival has come to the body of Christ at large in a region or a country, changing the social landscape for, for the years ahead um, dramatically. Um, I don't know if you know this, but it's like 70 years in the British Isles since there was last what we call revival experience. Um, I don't know if you know the story of the Hebridean revival in the little island of Lewis off the coast of Scotland there. 70 years ago in 1949, the spirit was poured out in power. And that's within living memory of some of the oldest residents there on the Isle of Lewis. And you can go and speak to these people about what that time was like when the Holy Spirit was poured out in power upon that place. I think in these days there is something that's beginning to stir among number of us to cry out to God for him to do something like that again. I know that's something that's brewing within me to cry out to God for him to pour out his spirit and power again upon his church. But I think it's true to say that even when God is seemingly silent as we were talking about that what may be coming round the corner might just catch us off guard. What we long for in God to come rarely really lines up with what God is cooking up himself. Often what he has in store for us is much, much better than we could have ever hoped or imagined. We get a little hint of this from the genealogy in Matthew, don't we? And that's why we were reading it this morning. Matthew's happy to include in this family tree of Jesus some of the really, really strange ways that God worked in the royal line of the Messiah. It's kind of amazing in this genealogy that Matthew includes four women. We talked about this in previous weeks. Both Steph and Dave talked about this patriarchal context into which um, the story of Ruth in particular 
uh, uh, was placed, um, but also in the days of Jesus and this genealogy, we see these four stories of women that are knitted intricately into the genealogy of Jesus himself. These four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, who actually isn't mentioned by name. She's just called the wife of Uriah. This is no insignificant move by Matthew. Genealogies were in those days exclusively traced through the male line. And here it is, Matthew drawing explicit attention to these women in the royal line. These women tell us an incredible story through their inclusion in this beautiful mess that is Jesus' own family tree. Just very quickly, Tamar was basically treated like a prostitute by her father-in-law, Judah. Rahab was the mother of Boaz, and she was a Canaanite prostitute from the, the city of Jericho. Ruth, as we know, was a widow of the hated Moabite race, and Bathsheba, she of I saw her bathing on the roof. Ruth fame was the, the woman that Israelites' favorite King David seduced and then had her husband killed. It's not just the women's stories in Jesus' line that are morally or ethnically dubious. Jacob in the line there, he lied and cheated his blind father into blessing him. David was a murderer and an adulterer. Rehoboam uh, loses most of David's gains through his own arrogance and greed. Ahaziah, son of Ahab, was a sadistic mass murderer, just like his dad. All rogues in themselves. So it's pretty clear from this that God isn't really concerned about accomplishing his work through neatly pious individuals who have got it all sewn up, who've got it all together. Rather, one, one commentator writing about this, he said uh, that Jesus didn't belong to the nice, clean world of middle-class respectability, but rather he belonged to a family of murderers, cheats, cards, adulterers, and liars. He belonged to us, and he came to help us. So no wonder he came to a bad end, and he gave us some hope. So these women's inclusion in the genealogy, it also tells us something else. Not only was it startling and scandalous to include them in the days when the lineage was traced through the male line, but including these women in the line of Jesus by name also speaks of the bestowal of dignity and raising up of women that Jesus would go on to do in his own life's work. It is even more amazing because three of these women were not Israelites at all. They were not of the chosen people of God. They were Gentiles. And this tells us that although God's promise through the law was given to Israel, woven right through the story is this riff of the inclusion of the Gentiles, hinting at God's wider purposes, that he would be fulfilled in Christ, that the redemption and salvation in him would be available to all. If we cast our minds back to the little story of Ruth that we've looked at over these past weeks, um, this story that has ordinary little people doing beautiful, ordinary, little, kind things, this book of Ruth that happened in the days when the judges ruled, it says in the first couple of verses of the book of Ruth, and the time of the judges was this time of great upheaval in the story of the people of God. Following the death of Moses and Joshua, the people had taken possession of the land, but they ended up running after other gods. They were bloody, treacherous, violent days, these days of the judges. 
the book of Judges says that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And into the violence of those days, we've got this beautiful story of Ruth inserted with its portrayal of vulnerability, of risk, of desperation, inclusion, kindness, and the beautiful provision of the Torah for those in need of protection and provision. The beauty and the mercy of the provision of the Torah was worked out in the loving kindness of the relationships between the people in the story. And this story forms a key link in this story of Jesus' lineage, not simply because it was the right bloodline, but because of the beautiful actions of the law providing mercy and the inclusion of the outsider. I think the amazing thing that's going on in this genealogy of Jesus that we just read is that the purity of the bloodline isn't the most important thing, but the most important thing is that this mercy that reaches out to those on the outside and brings them into the people of God and weaves them into the story of the Messiah's lineage himself. Matthew is a pains to communicate here. God's promise to Israel has always been extended out to the Gentile nations, those nations who were on the outside of the people of God are now brought to the inside and get to experience his redemptive promise. Those groups that the ancient readers assumed were out were actually incredibly and scandalously in after all. And all of this was to prepare the reader for the irregularity of Jesus' own birth. All the mess and the scandal that is embedded right into the story of Jesus' own lineage is setting us up for the scandal of his own birth to a teenage unmarried virgin by the Holy Spirit. This genealogy tells us of the anticipation of the Messiah that had been building over the centuries, woven into this big story of Jesus, are these surprising inclusions alongside promises of redemption and forgiveness of sins. Remember the 400 years of silence where God didn't speak until Jesus was born. Nobody suspected what God's next move was going to be. Let's talk about the incarnation for a moment. Nobody knew this was gonna be God's next move. Nobody expected God was actually going to take up flesh in himself, fully God, fully man, in the person of Jesus. Surprise of all surprises. In the incarnation of Jesus, God was rolling up his sleeves and taking a plunge right into the darkness, into the pain, into the filth that afflicted the pinnacle of his good creation, mankind bearing the image of God, male and female as he created them. Abba's delight, intrinsically good and with unsurpassable dignity and worth. And yet, it had become so stained and broken as Jesus' own genealogy would testify to. I love these words of Catherine of Siena, the mystic, which looks like my page has been chopped off a bit. No, here we go. She said this about the incarnation. You, high eternal trinity, acted as if you were drunk with love, infatuated with your creature. You, sweetness itself, stooped to join yourself with our bitterness. You, splendor, joined yourself with darkness. 
You, wisdom with foolishness. You, life with death. You, the infinite with us who are finite. What drove you to this? You see, God's plan wasn't just to make everything and then make it right again when everything went wrong. God's no creation was necessary so that the incarnation could happen. Incarnation was God's plan all along, not just creation. It wasn't some kind of plan B that kicked into gear once the original plan fell apart. God's joining himself to humanity, joining himself to his creation was the plan all along in the person of Jesus. God grafting humanity into himself. God the Son giving himself to redeem humanity, taking humanity up into himself was the plan all along. Creation is the overspill of the love between the members of the triune Godhead. This love shared between the members of the Godhead is a procreative love. It cannot help but give birth to life in all its vibrant expression. God's heart was all along to fully submerge himself within and unite himself to his creation, to reconcile it and restore it from the inside out. God joined himself to humanity in Christ and he is enacting his redeeming work that has always been a part of the mystery of his purposes. The union of God and man in the person of Jesus is the whole point. In Jesus, all of humanity has been justified through his saving work. Everybody is included if they want to be, if they want to respond to that. Paul in his great treatise on the work of Jesus in reconciling man to God, puts it like this in Romans 5. He says, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, much more of the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Therefore, as one trespass in Adam led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. T.F. Torrance, a 20th century theologian who I love, said this. He said that the union of God and man and Jesus is one dynamic event from the incarnation to the ascension. We tend to chop up the life of Jesus, don't we? We chop up his incarnation from his life, from his cross, from his ascension, from his coming again. We kind of chop it up into different portions, but that's not the way that we should think about it. We should think about it as one dynamic event, God's saving work, inserting himself into history, uniting himself with his creation in the person of Jesus to redeem his creation project. Maybe an easier way of saying all of that confusing theology is that the cross is in the manger. When you think about the manger, think about the cross. God in coming and uniting himself to his creation is his redeeming work enacted that found consummation and fulfillment in the cross. Let's think for one moment about participation in the first advent of Jesus. How are we to participate as the people of God in God's saving work? Well, the resurrected Jesus, he sent his disciples out and he said this about participating 
in the grafting in of those who were on the outside and telling them of Abba's great love. He said, Jesus said to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So we see this inclusion of these of all nations being commanded by his disciples, by the resurrected Jesus. Those who have been brought from the outside to the inside get to bear that message of inclusion to others as we walk it out in obedience and faith to Jesus together. I'm going to wrap this up now. And um, in a moment anyway, let me see how much I've got left here. If I need to invite the band up yet, I can't remember. Oh dear. Just give me a second. Yeah, I'll invite the band up. That's okay. We're not too bad. If I could invite the band up and we'll wrap up in a second. So in this Advent season, I want to say, I don't want to be all bah humbug. All the fields of Christmas have their place. I even kind of like them whenever I get into the season and cross that threshold into feeling Christmassy. But they're pretty benign when taken on their own, aren't they? We've got this record in this genealogy of Jesus of this amazingly wide embrace of the plan of God that is enacted in him that reconcile humanity to himself. Jesus' own lineage was as messy as yours, was as messy as mine, worse even. Doesn't matter what your family history is, what your heritage or your ethnicity is, whether you're from Island McGee or not. Doesn't matter what your social standing is, doesn't matter if you're orange or green or neither, whether you're progressive or conservative in your social or your economic politics. Doesn't matter if you're feeling burned out or used up or you feel like the world has run you over. You're included. He has already included you. The invitation has been extended to you to respond in faith and repentance. I think these few verses from the very end of the New Testament, the last chapter, Revelation 22, sum up this idea that I've been talking about of participation and anticipation when we think about the first and the second advent of Jesus. Is Revelation 22, verses 17, 20, and 21 says this. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and we're going to wrap up here. So we get to participate in this story. We get to participate in the first advent of Jesus in this advent season. You are included in this story. We, as the bride of Christ, we join our voices with the Spirit's invitation to all who have been included in the unfolding of humanity into Jesus. We join our voice with the Spirit and we say, 
come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. He, Jesus, is the water of life that we drink from. And we invite others to do so as well. It should be our joy to invite a world that thirsts for meaning, thirsts for healing, thirsts for a relationship with the divine to come and drink the water of life without price. And the beautiful thing is, we don't do this on our own. It's not just our voice sending out the invitation to come. The Spirit is at work too. The Spirit has always been at work. He is the one who is at work in the world. So we must be a people who cooperate with the work of the Spirit, who are sensitive to the Spirit's leading, who hunger for his presence and his empowerment. It should give us great comfort that we aren't in this on our own. We've been given the good gift of the Father, the Holy Spirit, to help us. And we also get to anticipate the second advent of Christ. We get to be the people who call on his name and ask for him to come. Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And we reply as the bride, come Lord Jesus. The ancient creeds of the church all testified is coming. It is the great hope of the church. He will come to judge the living and the dead as the Apostles' Creed says. But whilst we long for the second advent of his coming, we also ask for him to come to his church by his spirit to bring a time of refreshing. Send your spirit, Lord, we pray. Your church needs to be revived again. In the face of such darkness and need in the world, the church needs the breath of the Spirit to come and bring it to life. And the beautiful thing is, as we think about this idea of participation and anticipation, we get to share in this meal. We get to share in the wine and the bread, the body and blood of Christ, this meal that Jesus invited his first disciples to participate in, and we're still participating in this meal as we anticipate his second coming when we will sit with him at the wedding supper of the Lamb and we will actually feast with our Savior face to face. So Redeemer, I invite you to come. Come and take bread and wine participate in the first advent of Jesus, participate in the renewing work that he is doing in the world. And as we do that, as we drink, as we eat this morning, may we anticipate his second coming. Oh Lord, I pray there would be a hunger that would rise up in our hearts for you coming to your church 
in power by your Spirit. But, O oh Lord, that we would cry out as a people, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We love your presence, Lord. We thank you that you are with us. Thank you, Spirit, that you dwell with your people. Thank you that you have been poured out upon us. But, Lord, we long for more of your presence in our midst. We ask for your Spirit to be poured out in abundance upon us in these days. We yearn for your presence to be poured out upon us. So come, Holy Spirit. Meet us in this moment as we eat and drink. Bring the presence of Christ very near to us as we do that. In Jesus' name, let's sing.